Every single thing that you've gone through equips you to be able to do what you were born to do. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told where it was a, it was a corrupt judge? And the widow who really needs a good judgment. Now think about it. Back in those days, women had no standing at all in the community. So if this lady is pestering this corrupt judge to get her judgment, you know, it's probably the difference between eating and not eating. So she's just pestering this judge. And, and he's a corrupt judge, and he doesn't care about her, and he doesn't care about anybody but himself. He certainly isn't honoring God, but he says, you know what, i got to do something for this lady to get her off of my back. And Jesus is telling this story about how if a corrupt judge finally worn down will do something good for somebody who keeps asking, how much more will our Heavenly Father do? Right? So I read it, reread it. You know, I've read it a million times, but I reread it. You know what I saw today that I never saw before? Does anybody know the very last line? Don't look on your phone. No, no cheating. <laughs> Do you know the very last line of, of what Jesus said? It's in the book of Luke. I couldn't tell you exactly, even though I just read it a couple hours ago. But Jesus said in that parable, at the very last of it, he said, when the Son of Man returns, will there be anyone on earth with any faith? Wow. So here we are today on Saturday morning. You've all gathered. You've worshipped. I think it's safe to say he's going to find us here with some faith, right? So maybe he'll, when he makes his return, maybe he'll make the first stop Lancaster, California. So I was thinking about, okay, well, if, if Jesus is wondering, hoping that there'll be somebody left with faith when he returns, why is he worried about that? Why is he thinking about that? And I think it's because even his people, so many of us, we lose our faith. Over the years of living and the bumps and the bruises of this life, our encounters with evil, all the prayers that we prayed that we think didn't get answered, we prayed for somebody to live, and they died. We prayed for a healthy baby, and the baby was born with problems. We prayed for a marriage to be mended, and it didn't happen. And the older we get, and the more prayers that we've prayed that we didn't get the answer we wanted, you know, it it's like, takes a little chip out of our faith. And so many people fall away when something bad happens because they say, and you've all heard it, it starts with, if there was a good God, he wouldn't allow, fill in the blank, child abuse, babies to be born with some kind of a deformity, for somebody to be taken too soon in a senseless act of violence. You name it, fill in the blank of whatever 
your sadness is, whatever took a chunk out of your faith. So I love that this group gets together because when we come together and we praise the Lord, sometimes we're praising God through tears. Sometimes we're praising through gritted teeth. Sometimes we don't feel like it. If we're just going to be honest, sometimes we're still a little put out with God because our loved one passed, because our marriage failed whatever it is. I spent the first half of my life asking God why. I've realized now at my age, why questions to God are not a good idea. It just doesn't get you anywhere because his thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are higher than our ways, and we're probably not going to get the answer till we get there, so why waste your breath? But I was a kid, and I wondered why my mother left. My mother um, left me with a neighbor and asked the neighbor to babysit while she went shopping. But hours and hours later, she hadn't come back. And it turns out she had packed up all of her things and loaded her car and she moved out of state. And she never did come back. And I was left uh, in the care of maternal grandparents. And my grandfather was mentally ill. And my grandmother was an alcoholic and a drug addict. And so it was a chaotic way of life. If anybody here has ever known an addict or was raised by an addict or somebody who's mentally ill, you know that one minute can, you know, be a laugh a minute, and then the next minute you're just getting a stuffing beat out of you, or they're screaming and yelling and throwing things. And so it's, it's, it's awful. I was beaten for any reason or no reason at all. I was burned. I was disciplined with a skillet of hot oil when I was four years old for talking too much. I was asked to come here and talk. <laughs> it's worked out pretty well for me, this talking thing. So, you know, God is good. I'm going to get to that. But, I, I mean, I spent my whole childhood, and, and up until really I was like 40 years old going, why, why did that happen to me? Why couldn't I have been part of the Brady Bunch? I'm sure they played Monopoly every night. They had plenty of food in the house. We didn't have food. We had alcohol. We had cigarettes. We had baggies of pot from the drug dealers next door. My grandmother would buy a bag of pills or whatever, but we didn't have a lot of food. The electricity would get turned off. We lived in a little shack about the size of a garage and it was filthy, and I was always hungry. And it was just a crazy way of living. And when I, you know, you, I'd look at TV and I'd look at other kids at school and they had clean clothes and they had shoes that didn't have holes in them and 
they had plenty to eat. And I would say, why, God? Why? Why do I have to be like this? And I knew about God, not because of the people who raised me. They were atheists. So they said, there is no God. And anybody who thinks there's a God is just an idiot. And pastors and preachers just want your money. And that was the story at my house. But one day, the social worker came by. And she only came by very rarely because back in those days, if you could find a family member who took a kid, it was like, file clothes, we're good, we're done. But the social worker came by and I had two black eyes. And every other time she had come by, my grandfather uh, could talk his way out of anything. And he would meet her out of the car, or like when the police would get called, he'd go out, meet them at the car, say whatever it was he was able to say, and they would drive away. But this time, the social worker came to the door. He wasn't there, so he couldn't talk his way out of it. And one of my eyes was completely swollen shut, and the other one was almost completely swollen shut. And so she put me in her car and she took me to stay with these people. I didn't hear the term foster parent. I didn't know they were foster parents. All I knew is she was taking me to stay with these people. And those people took me to church. They had so much food in their kitchen. I never saw so much food. I ate those people. I'm like seven years old, something like that. I ate them out of house and home. I'm telling you, this lady had a bowl of M&Ms on, uh, on her little uh, coffee table. And every time I would walk by, I'd be like. And she would act like she didn't see me. And then she'd fill up the bowl. And... It was, it was just amazing. The house was clean. I'd never seen a clean house. The bed they gave me to sleep in, the sheets matched the pillowcases. <laughs> and the bedspread matched. And it was the very first time I ever felt safe. And I remember that. I am 62 years old, and I remember the very first night that I felt like I could sleep through the night. It's one of the wild things that my grandfather used to do in his mental illness, is he would have a moment where he would decide that there was too much damage that had been done. He would be up all night long, and uh, the, you know, no lights in the house, you could just see the red end of the cigarette, and he would come in and put a pillow over my head. Because, you know, the damage was just too, too far gone and he was just gonna help me out. You know, you can't, when somebody's mentally ill, there's no logic involved. And I would fight off a six foot two man. And, and then I would wonder, you know, why was I even born? So here I am with these foster parents sleeping like a baby. I didn't have to worry about somebody putting a pillow over my head. 
had a full belly of food. They took me to a church and they told me, we're going to the four square church. I don't know from church. Remember, I'm raised by atheists. So, so we show up and I was literally looking for the four squares. I don't know about square. Are we going to hopscotch? What are we going to do? It's four squares. Whatever. I'm out of the house. And these people feed me. If they want me to stand on my head and spit green jelly beans, that's what I'm going to do. So they take me to this church, and I didn't know anything about it, and they sent me to where the little kids go. And I'm coloring my picture of Jesus, and they taught us a song. Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world. So I walked out of that church, with the, the lady was holding my hand, and I'm, I'm sorry, very sorry to say, I don't know their names. I say the lady and that man. By the time I tried to find them, they were long gone, and so, but God knows who they are. But she came and got me, and she was holding my hand, and we walked out of the church, and I've got my little Jesus picture that I colored, and I'm singing my Jesus Loves Me song, because remember, nobody else has ever loved me as far as I knew, so I was really glad to hear about this Jesus guy, that somebody loves me. And so we're walking out, and I saw my grandfather's truck parked catty corner from the church. And my stomach started twisting because I thought, oh, he's going to be so mad. I'm at one of those churches. And sure enough, he filed a complaint against those wonderful people. And it was right after, in the 1960s, right after Madeline Murray O'Hare got prayer taken out of public schools. So it was kind of a thing then. You know, and, and now you can take foster kids to church, I believe. Uh, but there for a while, it was, you know, a terrible thing to indoctrinate kids. So I was pulled from that home and placed back with the abusive people. And as long as my grandparents had me, they got the $60 a month that came along with me. And I never did see those people again. But I had an experience there that I never, ever forgot, and it changed my life. I felt safe there. And when kids feel safe, what do they do? They finally show their emotions. And I remember having a full-blown meltdown on their white linoleum floor. I don't know their names, but I know they had a white linoleum floor, and it was clean. It was amazing. So I'm having a full-blown hissy fit I don't even know what about. And the lady was standing there kind of wringing her hands like she wants to give me an ice cream. She wants to give me anything to make me stop crying. And the man came to the doorway, and he stood in the doorway, and he said, young lady, you were put here for a reason. You better be about finding out what it is. I'm seven. I don't know the purpose for my life, you know. But And so I very, very maturely responded, as many foster kids will, I hate you. 
And then I was pulled from that home. Fast forward, I was 27 years old, working in an insurance agency. I had emancipated from the child welfare system here in California at 16. I became the youngest licensed insurance agent in the state of California when I was 17. I bought my first house when I was 18. And I was sitting at my desk when I was 27 and I got a big envelope from Hillview Acres Children's Home. They were in Chino. And I opened it up and out came all of these notes and drawings and crayon things from kids and a note from the executive director of, of Hillview Acres saying that what I had done for the children's home kept the doors of the children's home open. And I hadn't thought about those foster parents for years. In fact, I really kind of thought that, I mean, it was so hazy in my mind and it was such a short time that I was there, I actually kind of thought I sort of dreamed it. You know, can you really remember the details of what happened to you when you were seven? You know, kind of blends together and I, I don't know, I just, it was gone from my mind. But I sat there and I looked at all these notes from the kids and the letter from the CEO and in my head, I heard that foster father say, you were put here for a reason and you better be about finding out what it is. And I thought, I'm supposed to ensure and protect and defend the good people and organizations that take care of abused kids. I didn't feel fulfilled taking care of the insurance of wholesale produce guys and wholesale food guy, although that worked out pretty well because I married the wholesale food guy. And 32 years later and I eat really well, there's a lot of food at my house, so it's all good. But I quit my job and I started the only insurance organization in the United States that was founded solely to protect and defend the good people and organizations that take care of abused kids. And when I did that, oh, thank you. But that, you know, it's, it was God. So going back to evil, and why does evil happen? And why does you do unanswered prayers chip away at our faith and make us think, ah, there's not even a God because if there was a good God, you wouldn't let this happen. Or if there is a God and he can't stop it from happening, then he's not powerful. What if he's a bad God and he makes these things happen, right? Some people leave faith entirely on the premise of evil in the world. We've all known people who experienced tragedy and they fall away. I'll bet that every single person in this room has experienced pain. Maybe it's not child abuse, but maybe it's abandonment. Maybe somebody passed away before you were ready for them to pass away. Everybody's gone through a hard thing, and yet 
here you are. You didn't give up on God. I feel like my whole entire life is a miracle, despite the fact that all that hard stuff happened. But I'm going to tell you, I would not have been able to do what I've done in my career if I hadn't been through it. See, every single one of you, you are the world's foremost expert on your life. You know what you've been through. You've survived every one of your worst days. And every time we survive a hard thing, we can either give up on God because we have to go through it, or we can glorify God and use it. We can mine the lessons out of what we've been through. We can look at the character traits that get developed in us, the resilience, the resourcefulness, the strength, the courage, the bravery, everything that you've had to go through that made you who you are today glorifies God. Amen. That is your Magnificat. When we can glorify God as a result of our pain, We send the enemy packing. The enemy has no right, no foothold, no stronghold, no way in to the life of a person who will say, God, take the broken pieces of my heart, of my life, of my mind, and do something good through me. The whole point is to take your pain and say, God, I want to cooperate with you. I want to collaborate with you. Be, I want to be your hands and feet. I want to be your voice. Whatever it is that you can do, and you do it in the lives of the people who are right in your influence. We don't have to go. I mean, God bless the missionaries who get on 22-hour flights. That's just not me. I don't like to fly, and God showed me. Your mission field is right outside your front door. Some of you, your mission field is inside your house. And the reason why God placed the people in our lives who are there, you know, the grouchy ones, <laughs> the irritable ones, the difficult ones, the ones who want to complain about everything, don't pray for God to take some, you know, an irritable coworker out of your life or whatever. You're there for a reason. You have an opportunity to show them with your life the glory of God. You know, for some of you, you don't have to speak a word. When people know what you've been through, when they know what you've survived, and you're standing tall and the light of Christ is just beaming out of you, we don't have to, we don't really don't have to hit people over the head. Every book that God has given me to write is written, well, I shouldn't say this, there's two prayer books, but the rest of the books are written in full secular. I speak fluent atheist. 
I can speak the word of God without quoting chapter or verse, and it's in my books. That's why God had me raised by atheists, because I get it. I get every argument about God. Whatever you've been through, God will use. Whatever difficult person you've experienced in your life, God can use however that changed you. This is a part I didn't tell you, but the reason why I wound up in insurance, that was God. I mean, really, everything was God. I survived the whole crazy-making roller coaster that I lived on in the first 16 years of my life because of God. Uh, but an uninsured fire burned down the little shack that we lived in. And we were homeless. We lived in the park. And I ate food out of trash cans. And we went behind the, a fast food place, you know, in the dumpster for a half-eaten this or that. I know how it feels to be cold and dirty and ashamed and frightened because bad things happen at night when you try to sleep when you're homeless. And, and it was all because we had no insurance on the little shack when it burned down. So here's how good God is. So I found out about emancipation. I heard somewhere, I read it, I don't know where it came from, but I thought, oh, I want to be emancipated. I want to be on my own. I want this guy to quit beating on me. Uh, so I took myself down to the courthouse, and I didn't know you were supposed to go with a lawyer or a social worker or somebody who knew something. I just went down there to the courthouse. I'm 15 years old, and I waited there all day long. And anytime anybody walked by that who looked like they might have known something, I would say, do you know how to get emancipated? Can you tell me how to get emancipated? Do you know where I should go to get emancipated? And finally, some bailiff felt sorry for me, and he took me back to the chambers of a judge. And this judge said, okay, well, you can, you can get emancipated. Uh, but you have to have a job, so you have to come back and show a paycheck, and you have to have an apartment, you have to bring your lease, and you have to have a utility bill, and you have to have a checking account, you have to have a savings account, and I think he thought he'd never see me again. <laughs> <laughs> so I went back to Upland High School, to the ROP department, and I said, can you help me get a job? And they said, well, there are two jobs available. One is a trainee for a bank teller, and one is at an insurance agency. And the one I can get you in today is the insurance agency. I'm like, fabulous. I would love to work in an insurance agency. What's insurance? <laughs> I had no idea what that was. But I went over there, and it was a little farmer's agent. And his, his name is Chuck Wheeler. And I say it every time I speak because I would love to find Chuck Wheeler. He's not on Facebook. I already checked. So I went in there, and he's interviewing me. And he's saying, well, do you know how to do Oh, yeah, that's the best thing I know how to do. I had no idea what he was talking about. And so he said, well, what about, he even said, if you could imagine this man saying this to a 15-year-old kid, he said, do you know how to file the tax returns? I said, as a matter of fact, I'm really good at that. And so he hired me. I had no idea what I was doing. And so he had me telemarketing. 
I was the one who would call you just as you're trying to get the fork right up to your mouth and take your bite of dinner. And I would say, do you have good homeowner insurance? Because you know, if you don't, you could wind up homeless and you don't want that. And so I'm making these calls. In the first seven months, I became the number one telemarketer for farmers insurance in the United States. <laughs> All this is done. Because I'm like, I don't want you to be homeless. That would, I didn't tell anybody. I never told anybody. But I'm like, you know, it's terrible. You don't want that. It's very important that you have the right insurance. Well, then I started really screwing up. And I started talking to them about, you know, well, here's, here's how much it would cost. Because the rate book was right there. It wasn't that big of a deal. And then Chuck came over and he's like, no, you have to be licensed. We're all going to go to jail. Don't do that anymore. Like, I thought the whole point was to sell a policy. So no, you have to go get licensed. Well, the Department of Insurance wouldn't let me test until I was emancipated. Well, needless to say, I mean, I'm saving every single dollar, and I got an apartment, and I bought a little car, and I had a checking account, a savings account. He didn't say how much had to be in the account. He left that part out, so it worked out okay. And I went back, and I saw that judge the day after my 16th birthday, and he granted my emancipation. And so... What Chuck really didn't know, what I didn't know, is that Chuck was launching a 35-year career in the insurance industry. So all those years later, when Hillview Acres Children's Home had the kids, you know, draw pictures for me, it was because their rates had skyrocketed, and I, you know, went to work and we were able to save them thousands of dollars. They were able to keep their doors open at that time. And I thought, wow, look what God did. I could have gone to the bank. The bank job was open. It's like God just, I didn't have to do anything. See what I'm trying to say? All I had to do was show up. And God just like, did it. God just did it. And when the anointing on all that was up, and I knew it was up, I sold my company. He gave me my first book. And it was like a download. I didn't know how to write a book. I didn't know the first thing about it. And I just started writing and writing and writing. And I actually wrote to my friend, Blanca's daughter was a foster mom. And she said, I want you to come and talk to this 17-year-old girl. She's making wrong decisions at 100 miles an hour, and she won't listen to me. And I go, well, she's not going to listen to me. But I'll write her a letter, and she can throw it. She can want it. She can throw it. And maybe she'll pick it back up when she's ready. And that was my first book. And I printed up a few copies and gave them to social workers, friends of mine, and psychologists. Just asked them, like, make sure I don't say anything that would harm somebody. Well, one of them sent it to Barnes & Noble to the buyer in New York. And the Barnes & Noble lady called me one day, and I thought, 
Yeah, right. Who's messing with me? No, it really was Barnes and Noble. And so she said, if you'll make these changes to this book, I'll make sure you're in every single Barnes and Noble. And she did. I did. And she did. And then the Today Show called. And then other shows called. And I was like, okay, God, I'm strapped into the roller coaster. It hasn't come to a stop yet. I mean, here I am in Lancaster. I'm like, okay, whatever. Whatever God wants me to do, I just show up. I want you to know the side note to that book is that the 17-year-old girl who was making some bad decisions, she's a wonderful woman of God now. She's a good wife. She's a good mother. She's a beautiful woman of God because of Blanca's daughter, Susie sticking by her and never giving up. If we all will pray, respond to God, say yes to God, even when it doesn't seems inconsequential or it seems like it doesn't make sense. For me, I'm an off-the-chart introvert. If God would have said, oh, I'm going to have you go speak to bunches of people or whatever, I would have been like, Oh no, you've got the wrong number. I'm sure. I'm sure there's somebody way more qualified than me. But you know, God will use us. Whatever you have, He'll use it. But He's waiting for us. He never forces Himself. He's waiting for us to say yes and take a leap of faith. You could imagine when I left that job, you know, the one with the paycheck. And the benefits, and I started my own company. Uh -huh. I had no money. I had no family. I had no safety net. I had no savings. I had nothing. It was me and Jesus. And when I sold my company, it was national, and I sold it to an international publicly traded company. I mean, that couldn't happen without God. And I started Successful Survivors Foundation. It's a nonprofit organization. We're 100% survivor-led, 100% volunteer. So the only revenue that we get is the sale of books. And when I go and, you know, somebody pays me to speak or whatever. And we're launching now a program to prevent child sex trafficking in Las Vegas. And then we're going to take that program and we're going to replicate it in communities all over the United States. And there are lots of programs that we do through successful survivors with no paid staff. Everybody volunteer, you know, no revenue coming in. If that's not God, I don't know what that is. But it all comes down to just saying yes. So I'm grateful for you guys having me here today. And I'm grateful for your faith because you're the answer to what Jesus asked today. You're the answer, each one of you. And you take your faith into your home, into your workplace, into your neighborhood, into your community, and just see what God will do remarkable things will happen when we just get out of his way and go with the program 
And I would love to hear from you. I'd love for you to connect with me because I want to know what God's going to do in you and through you. So my website is Rhonda, R-H-O-N-D-A dot O-R-G. And anybody who wants it, you can have a, a free Bible study called What's Your Life Assignment? And if you go to my website, go to books, and the free co- the code that makes it free is uh, free W-Y-A. And you just download it. And it's all about how. How to take those steps. How to find out what your life assignment is now in this season of your life. And I'll tell you that a lot of it has to do with the pain that you've been through. A lot of it has to do with how God will glorify himself, your Magnificat, through your pain, because of your pain. It's the fulfillment of Romans 8.28 that God will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. You are called. You're here on a Saturday morning. You love him. Let's see what he's going to do. It's going to be good. And I would love for you to let me know about it. So thank you very much for having me. Things that you've been through have changed the way you see the world. They've qualified you to do what you were born to do and perfectly matched to do. Is there anything more important than finding and living the purpose for which you were born? I don't think so. I think that's the point.